0: Let's address this: the personal okay, here's- score that's
1: given to Asian applicants to Harvard. Why do they? Why are they given
2: a lower score than any other group? That was Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito. Affirmative action is before the court again, thanks to two lawsuits. They're both filed by the nonprofit Students for Fair Admissions. The group argues the University of North Carolina and Harvard University have affirmative action admission protocols that discriminate against Asian Americans. Affirmative action has been protected under Supreme Court precedent for more than 30 years, but high court watchers believe the policy could be doomed under the current conservative supermajority. After the break, we discuss the history of affirmative action, its legal basis, and the potential impact a Supreme Court ruling could have on hiring practices that include race as a consideration. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Stay with us. We have a lot to get into after the break. we're discussing affirmative action. Joining us to discuss is Olatunde Johnson. She's a law professor at Columbia University. She's worked on affirmative action cases throughout her career. Olatunde, we appreciate you joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And with us from Chapel Hill, North Carolina, we have Ted Shaw. He's a law professor at the University of North Carolina and was at the Supreme Court for the oral argument on Monday. He was formerly the head of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Ted, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Olatunde, let's start with the basics. When we say affirmative action, what exactly are we talking about?
1: In the context of these cases, um, we're talking about the consideration of race and ethnicity as one factor in an overall admissions program. You sometimes hear the term holistic, and that's to really encapsulate the fact that there are a broad range of diversities that are considered in assembling a student body. So um, without giving the entire history of um, affirmative action, um, the most important case is the one you referenced in your introduction when you talked about a case um, called uh, Grutter. Um, in which the Supreme Court in 2003 reaffirmed um, that race and ethnicity can be one factor among many to promote diversity. Um, And the court talked about it as um, cultivating a set of leaders with legitimacy in the eyes of the citizenry. So to build a pluralistic democracy
2: universities can consider race and ethnicity as uh, one factor among many. We'll talk a little more about Grutter later in the hour. But Ted, the legal arguments surrounding affirmative action mostly center on two separate issues, remediating previous discrimination against prospective students of color and encouraging diversity within the classroom. Talk us
3: through those differences and what's at the heart of the current case. The efforts, the conscious efforts to uh, open doors of opportunity to black and brown students, particularly the African-American students, began uh, in the late 1960s, but almost immediately there was a blowback. There were a couple of cases, one which the court didn't decide on the merits, and another one uh, that it did decide. That was the Bakke case. Uh, and Baki, for all practical purposes, very complex uh, case, fractured court. Uh, but Bakke uh, all but killed affirmative action as a governing rationale and admissions. Affirmative action really is to remedy past discrimination based in the 14th Amendment interest of black and brown students uh, in access to higher education. But uh Justice Lewis Powell in that uh, decision came up with another rationale uh, for uh, race-conscious uh, decisions and admissions, and that was diversity. Uh, but that interest didn't belong to black and brown students. It belonged to colleges and universities as a First Amendment uh, matter of deciding whom they educated, whom they admitted, whom they hired to teach, et cetera, etc., And for the last 40 some odd years, that became the dominant rationale for uh, race consciousness in admissions to higher education. And it not only spread beyond higher education uh, to reach uh, the uh, corporate world, to reach uh, the military, uh, to reach all corners of our society, but it became a value and an interest that uh, was uh, accepted internationally around the country. So the bottom line is uh, race consciousness and emissions uh, can stand on one of two legs, uh, affirmative action, uh, and uh, the other one being diversity. They overlap, uh, but they are not exactly the same. What's interesting, one of the things interesting to me now is that all of a sudden we are once again... Uh, hearing a lot of discourse about affirmative action uh, as these cases are being heard. It's been mostly about diversity in recent years.
2: Well, let's hear from Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson during Monday's oral
4: arguments. The first applicant says, I'm from North Carolina. My family has been in this area for generations since before the Civil War. And I would like uh, you to know that I will be the fifth generation to graduate from the University of North Carolina. I now have that opportunity to to do that. And given my family background, it's important to me that I get to attend this university. I want to honor my family's legacy by going to this school. The second applicant says, I'm from North Carolina. My family's been in this area for generations since before the Civil War, but they were slaves and never had a chance to attend this venerable institution. As an African American, I now have that opportunity and given my family family background it's important to me to attend this university well, la explain
2: a little bit more how affirmative action has sought to remediate past racial discrimination
1: yeah, I, I thought that was a really um, interesting line of questioning that um, justice brown jackson Undertook. Um, It was very powerful rhetorically, um, but um, in terms of the doctrine of the case, it was really showing the way in which diversity interests and remedial interests are necessarily intertwined. And this picks up on a little bit of what Professor Shaw was talking about. So um, as Professor Shaw said, um, when you think about the remedial interest, it could be an institution remedying its own discrimination. And there would be a lot um, to suggest that, for example, with the University of North Carolina, that they could put on quite a record of remedying their own discrimination, right? They were a jury discrimination state They, of course, um, had uh, slavery, um, but this, of course, continues excluding um, African-Americans in education um, through much of the 20th century. And even now, um, um, they're characterized by segregation um, that is – I know people like to make the distinction between by law and not by law, but the distinction hardly matters when you have patterns of segregation. They're really traced to um, state action. And so I thought that question was really good in showing that, yes, we like the forward-looking diversity interest. The one I referred to before from Gruder, which is that access to education has to be inclusive of talent um, wherever you find it. Um, and so, because we have a heterogeneous society. I think it's important to um, take that strand of Grutter, but Justice Brown Jackson was also saying that the problem with the remedy or a potential problem with the remedy the plaintiffs are seeking is that it would acknowledge all sorts of different ways in which race influences um, or in which background influences someone's application, except for the fact of their blackness, um, which is rooted in this history of inequality. So she really tied together a pro, uh, you know a, a limitation of what the plaintiffs were arguing with this larger landscape
2: of how um, race has shaped op- opportunity. Well, Justice, Elena Kagan raised concerns about the impact of losing affirmative action. What could that mean for minority student enrollment?
4: In your view, it really wouldn't matter if there was a precipitous decline in minority admissions, African-American, Hispanic, one or the other. Um, You know, if I think uh, there are some numbers in in this case, but, you know, suppose that it just fell through the floor. Would it, it just, you know, too
3: bad? Well, I don't think that it's going to fall through the floor if the university is actually committed to the broader diversity it wants. Because
4: right. It can... I know you think that. And there's been obviously a lot of the litigation has been about that. How much will it decline? And your expert and their expert. But the logic of your position suggests that that really doesn't matter.
2: Olatunde, well, what does the data suggest happens to minority student enrollment when affirmative action is rolled back?
1: Well, we have some um, data coming from public institutions about um, precipitous declines in African-American and Latino um, enrollment, um, for example, um, at the University of Michigan system. And then um, I think even more famously, the University of California um, system how it would function in different, um, contexts. Um, you know, it doesn't, it's not going to be the same pattern everywhere. Um, but we, but the record in these cases showed that there would likely be a decline in the number of African Americans and Latinos. Um, and it really, um, you know, some of it is, um, that the plaintiffs are urging that you can look at what they call race neutral alternatives and, By that, um, they mean various changes to the admissions programs, including, um, they say, more emphasis on socioeconomic background or 10% plans. Um, These institutions um, all consider socioeconomic uh, uh, background um, as a plus factor, too, and they also consider other forms of geography. Um, But there's evidence, um, generally, when we look at other systems like Texas and California, that socioeconomic background um, alone doesn't do the work. And that has to do with the fact that um, how we think about educational opportunities
2: shaped by both race and class. And Let's bring another voice into the conversation. Joining us is Aisha White. She's an attorney based in Washington, D.C. She's also a former admissions counselor at Dartmouth College. Aisha, welcome to the program.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
2: We got this tweet from Anna who says, if affirmative action is taken off the list of considerations, does it mean that applicants will be judged solely only on merit? And Aisha, I'm going to come to you and your experience in college admissions at Dartmouth. What were the qualifications you were looking for from prospective students?
0: So you definitely want students that are extreme high achievers in an Ivy League institution. However, the way you look at that is different based on different applicants. So at all Ivy League institutions, you have those who have excelled greatly in their basic areas. So you would have a Michelle Kwan come forward and say, I want to have a college degree and I have competed at the highest level in ice skating. The same thing happens for our typical high school students. They will say, I have a perfect GPA. I've also gone and done the Intel science competition and all of these things, right? However, you do also have greatly high achievement people who come from disadvantaged socioeconomic backgrounds. And so when looking at those applications, they have the same academic rigor, I would say, but they didn't have the opportunity to go to an Intel science competition because they go to a public school, and they do not have teachers that have those connections to get into those competitions, nor do they have parents who can afford private lessons to get them to the Olympics. So, when you're looking at those applications, and I can speak for Dartmouth specifically, you are ranked at how highly you were able to achieve before coming to college. Right? If you were an Eagle Scout or in in Girl Scouts, a, a gold award winner. All of these things are based and ranged. However, you do have to take into account that there are some people, particularly Black people, Hispanic people, and Indigenous people, who have been cut off to these lofty things based on money and access. And so what Dartmouth definitely tried to do is make sure that there was even playing on that. And because of that, of course, your race and your socioeconomic status was taken into consideration. I'm curious to hear how big a factor race was
2: when you were trying to consider whether a student was qualified for admissions at Dartmouth.
0: It wasn't that the race was a consideration as a qualification, but it did take into account why this person may not have been able to go to an Intel competition, why this person may not have been able to study abroad and do a a foreign language immersion program, right? Why this person hasn't uh, created an app thus far, right? When, When you hear
2: people talk about a meritocracy or mm-hmm. taking that approach in admissions, what do you commonly understand them to be talking about? And what do you think it's
0: overlooked when we're talking about merit? Uh, I think what is overlooked is how much money plays into what you can have For your children. I'll say for myself, I grew up as a girl on the south side of Chicago, and I was very fortunate to have certain programs that were free programs that were in place, which are not even available anymore. I'm a product of Head Start. I'm a product of affirmative action. Right. But now, since I have gone through those programs, I can offer my children different things. But I do realize that those who are still in my family still have to do the things that I did, which was go to public school and hope that if you get the best grades, that that is seen just as good as someone who went to Georgetown Day, right? We have worked equally as hard. We just haven't had the access to the same things. And what college is trying to do is make sure that you don't count the people out based on their parents' inability to pay for all of those extra things, extra tutors, extra people who help you with your college applications and write your essays and all of those things. Now, Ted, following your time as the head of the NAACP's Legal Defense
2: Fund, you were recruited to be a law professor at the University of Michigan. What was the admissions process for minority students like prior to your arrival?
3: When I came to Uh, The University of Michigan, I was recruited to teach at the law school. Uh, And by the way, this was uh, in between different uh, stints at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Uh, But when I got there, uh, one of the things that I found out was that uh, the law school, with the best of intentions, I mean, they weren't trying to discriminate against anyone, uh, white people or anyone else. It was overwhelmingly White law school and student enrollment, uh, but they had black students involved in the admissions program to some degree um, as a way of trying to uh, further efforts to enroll more black students. And the same thing with Latinx students. Uh, I thought that while that was with the best of intentions, uh, it was problematic to the extent that the only governing precedent at that time, the Bakke case, made clear, among other things, a range of things that we could talk about. Uh, but you had to have one pool of uh, of candidates for admission. You couldn't have separate pools. And an argument could have been made that uh, because they had black students involved with Black student admissions and the same thing with Latinx students, that uh, that was a little bit of a different process than with, for example, white students. Uh, uh, And so I thought that they needed to change that. Of course, even the black students weren't happy to hear that. But I went to the dean. uh, The long and the short of it was the dean at the time was Lee Bollinger, by the way, who became the named uh, defendant uh, in the two cases uh, that went to the Supreme Court in two thousand three, uh, but after our discussions, he appointed a committee to make sure that the admissions processes uh, were overhauled, uh, and one of the primary purposes was to see that uh, the admissions processes were consistent with the Supreme Court's precedent in the Bakke case. That's the short of it. It's much more complex than that, but. Uh, time doesn't permit that full discussion. Mm.
2: Well, the the 2003 Supreme Court case, Grutter v. Bollinger, it centered around the University of Michigan Law School. How did that case set precedent for race and admissions over the past two decades?
1: Yeah, so in a lot of ways, it reaffirmed um, Powell's opinion in Bakke um, that Um, really emphasized the diversity interest um, and described it um, in terms that we have talked about in the sense of it's about the university's prerogative, right, to um, really um, uh, follow through on their own institutional values, what they think of as being a rich academic environment. It also talked about classroom uh, diversity um, in the sense of, uh, viewpoints and ideas, reducing stereotypes—the kinds of things that take place in and outside of the classroom. Um, but I think it's also important to note that that Gruder expands the diversity interest um, by talking about it um, or, or you know strengthening the language language around leadership um, and the importance of education in our democratic society so it relied on briefs from fortune 500 companies and and military um, uh, the military brief to say um, this is important um, for creating legitimacy in our society for problem-solving in workplaces for being the kind of global leaders we want to be as um Americans, and then applying that to the education um, context um, to say the meaning of Brown, the core meaning of Brown versus Board of Education was about the centrality of education to our democracy. So um, Grutter is really important. And the one of the things that the Grutter court does is also um, appeal um, to the Harvard plan. And that's what's created the target um, that's on the Harvard plan um, specifically today But there's nothing about um, the programs that are being considered um, that are different from the the programs that were affirmed um, in Grutter. Um, So the court would really have to move away from a lot of what it said. Um, So if you don't, if as long as you don't have quotas, if you um, use um, and consider race flexibly um, as a plus factor, one among many factors, um, the way in which admissions is described as... um, really considering um, everything about someone's background,
2: and race is not going to be decisive or Mm -hmm. insulate them from competition. We got this question from Logan, whose emails, this is a serious case, but I believe this case only affects a very small percentage of institutions. How many colleges and universities use race in admissions in the first place? Are they only elite schools? Oletunde, what can you tell us?
1: So I haven't looked at the data recently, but from the time um, that, and others may be able to step in on this, but... Um, it is true that um, this affects most um, uh, the selective, most selective institutions, and but that's only just because they're overall selective, right? Um, so, and what I mean by that is that a lot of applicants, some schools um, have um, admissions where they'll admit something like fifty percent of their applicants, and when you're talking about, let's say, Harvard, they admitted something like four percent of their applicants, right? So that's what um, creates um, any kind of importance of considering any particular factor, or potentially, then that's very different from, um, you know, a community college, might, which might accept um, a tremendous number of their applicants. Aisha, you sure your thoughts?
0: So there are nine states that do not consider race at all within their state institutions, and Florida is one of them. And I am a proud alumnus of the University of Florida, and I sit on the alumni board. The year that I graduated in 1999, Florida stopped using race in any way to determine its admissions. And unfortunately, since then, the student body of color has gone down significantly at the University of Florida. Um, and it's one of those things as I'm not sure if I would have gotten in, right? And I've gone on to do great things. And unfortunately, there are a number of students of color who won't get that opportunity, just because when it is blind, and you are only looking at those who have excelled being anything above and beyond, then you are really missing those who have tried and gave their full effort and are scholars, yet just didn't have access to some of the, the grandiose things that others do. We're discussing the future of affirmative action. We'll be back with more from you
2: and our guests in just a moment. Let's get back to our discussion and turn to strict scrutiny. Many colleges and universities give preferential admissions treatment to so-called legacy students, the children of alumni and donors. Now, during oral arguments, conservative Justice Brett Kavanaugh suggested that if that practice was banned, quote, racial neutrality could be achieved without affirmative action. Let's listen to what he said.
1: Wealthy university, okay, and it still prefers all of these and give checks to these kinds of persons not for their academic merit but because they would bring diversity in the form of a squash team or they might bring a new art museum we heard for example oh we have to admit that kid because his parents are going to donate an art museum okay suppose the university could achieve race neutrally just just suppose um, race neutrally all of its diversity objectives if it just eliminated those preferences Would strict scrutiny require it to do so?
2: Olatunde, can you explain what he means by strict scrutiny? So strict scrutiny means that in order to justify the use of
1: race, a university has to show what we consider a compelling interest. It's the highest level of um, justification. And... The history of that is that we're afraid of racial discrimination. We have a history of racial inequality in this country. But the court has applied it to the affirmative action context, even though it's supposed to benefit um,
2: African-Americans and Latinos. Let's go back to our voicemail box. Here's a question we got from Michael in Raleigh, North Carolina. If they strike down affirmative action, does that mean that affirmative action in all places or just schools
1: stop? Because I feel that any type of minority quotas that are imposed on schools should also be imposed on companies as well.
2: Now, Ayesha, just to clarify Michael's question, the cases facing the Supreme Court don't involve schools using quotas. They focused on whether race should be a determining factor in admissions. How could this ruling impact businesses beyond universities, if at all?
0: Well, I don't think that the ruling will directly affect businesses. What I will say is that it will give uh, those who brought this suit the opportunity, which they said they already want, to challenge diversity in hiring and diversity in corporate board selection. And so that is what we're really facing here, depending on what the court says. Um, And if they really tailor it narrowly to only talk about education, if they open it up more broadly, then it gives an opportunity for those to bring test cases about whether diversity should be considered at all within hiring or within corporate board selection.
2: We also got this tweet from Gary who says, one of the underlying issues of affirmative action in the 2020s hinges on the extreme competition for college admission. Ted, as someone who who worked at the University of Michigan and worked on their admissions policy in the law school, an incredibly competitive university, do you think that's part of the conversation that's getting overlooked, that admission to colleges and universities overall has just gotten so difficult?
3: Oh, absolutely. That's part of uh, the dynamic here. Uh, admissions in particular to selective institutions uh, is extremely competitive. And uh, for the most part, uh, it's a, a competition between uh, the most privileged members of society, the most uh, economically privileged in particular, uh, and without uh, conscious efforts to be more inclusive, uh, whether it's to uh, people who come from racial minority groups, uh, but also uh, the overlap uh, between racial minority groups and, uh, and people who are economically unprivileged, uh, you know, without conscious efforts to do that, uh, it would remain solely a competition or almost solely a competition among the hyperprivileged in society, the uberprivileged. Uh, so that's certainly part of the dynamic.
2: Olatunde, well, could the Supreme Court case affect affirmative action policies at other types of schools? I'm thinking K-12 private schools or charter schools?
1: Um, yes, it could definitely um, have an effect on other um, schools. Um, so um, the thing that I've been looking most at are its potential effect on K-12 through schools, right? So um, elementary schools. A lot of what people say when they're thinking about these questions of educational access is let's focus on what happens in high school or elementary schools um, and broaden access there. But a lot of um, the strategies that people have tried to employ to improve educational outcomes at the K-12 through level um, are being contested too. So access to um, elite schools um, and for me, even most troubling only, um, access um, to integration itself. Um, and the Supreme Court has not had a full-throated endorsement of integration, voluntary integration programs. And so um, I think this is a really real opportunity to um, <laughs> to say if we're serious about um, a time limit on race-conscious affirmative action, which I think is kind of a dubious concept. But if we are interested in a time limit, then um, we have to um, reverse parents involved, a decision that really
2: limited the ability of institutions to have K-12 through Um uh, voluntary integration program. I want to quickly get to this tweet from Heather who says, if affirmative action is overturned, is there a chance that Asian Americans who brought this case would be even more likely to be discriminated against and therefore underrepresented? Uh, first, a quick fact check to Olatunde. Who brought this case forward? Um, so this um, case is really not brought by
1: Asian American students. Um it's an Asian. Amer- a lot of groups representing Asian American students um, uh, have been tr- trying to emphasize that point. That, um, and it was brought by um, Ed Blum, and the and the cre- They created an organization. They've been very tactical, um, which is um, a lot of what social, you know, organizations do. Um, is that they really think carefully about who their plaintiffs are, in the first generation of cases. Um, they um, brought um, cases represented by white women um, because they thought they'd be more sympathetic than white men challenging affirmative action. And then um, very clearly said, um, we're going to now look for Asian American uh, plaintiffs. And um, Asian Americans also themselves are um, a diverse group. And there are cases, um, other cases, they have a Um, cases uh, in Title VI complaints against the Yale University where they segment out um, all groups that they think benefit from affirmative action. So they um, aren't representing necessarily Vietnamese Americans, um, Filipinos, or or Cambodians. Um, So I think we have to be careful um, when we think about um, who brought the case and and understand some of this context.
2: And and very briefly, uh, Heather wanted to know whether or not um, if there's a chance Asian-American students would be more likely to be discriminated against and therefore underrepresented if affirmative action is overturned?
1: Most Asian-Americans benefit um, from affirmative action and, and support it. Um, and I would hope, I mean, I think it would be a real concern if there was something called discrimination against Asian-Americans in the, in the college process or the K-12 through um, process. I don't see why that would be an outcome of this case, Um, so I'm having a little trouble um, wrapping my mind around the question, but I think it's really important that all institutions um, don't rely on stereotypes and that they um, keep their doors open um, for um, a diverse array of students. But they're going to be students of every single race and ethnicity and gender um, that don't get into colleges. And it's always easy to say it's because of your race, but it's actually a very hard thing to establish. I mean, we all feel disappointed when
2: we don't get opportunities. Ted, you sat in on the oral arguments on Monday. What were your big takeaways?
3: Well, the big takeaway is the way in which this court has been uh, explicitly engineered to be the most conservative Supreme Court in our time. Uh, It's a mistake to predict with certainty what the Supreme Court is going to do, but we've already seen that this court uh, is uh, willing to overturn precedent uh, we saw that last June, and a lot of people think that we may see that uh, again. This is the court that conservatives uh, have wanted. They've never uh, accepted Bakke and Gruder, and they've been on a mission. Uh, and uh, we're, we've arrived at this moment. Uh, one thing I want to leave uh, us with Uh, is that historically the problem uh, with race in this country hasn't been race consciousness. It's been racism. Uh, And uh, these schools that take uh, race into account, they're conscious of race, are not uh, intent on discriminating against white people or Asians. Uh, They want broad inclusiveness of people from all backgrounds.
2: That's Ted Shaw. He's a professor of law at the University of North Carolina, formerly the head of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Also with us today Aisha White, an attorney based in Washington, D.C., and Olatunde Johnson. She's a professor of law at Columbia University, and she's worked on affirmative action cases throughout her career. Thanks to you all. Today's producer was Chris Remington. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A.